Blog Talk Radio. Challenging, thought-provoking, insightful. This is God in Country, the collision of faith and politics. Hosted by nationally known speaker, Reverend Dr. Sean Michael Greener. Not your typical Rev. Dr. Sean is a proud military veteran, former law enforcement officer, and founder of the internationally regarded Executive Protection Team. Through counseling, elite life coaching, and national speaking, this ninja pastor tells it like it is. This series is biblically and politically engaged with the pedal to the metal. With today's edition of God in Country, here is host and author of the acclaimed yet controversial book, Excellence Killed the Church, How Mediocrity is Destroying America, Dr. Sean Michael Greener. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on this very special uh, Friday edition, a very rare Friday edition of The Ninja Pastor and the Collision of Faith and Politics. Uh, Today is a very special day. You are in luck, and the reason you're in luck is because you have the opportunity to uh, partake in something that I think, um, well, there's people all over the United States of America who have heard my guest today, a very, very special guest, and they've heard him and they've never been the same. Uh, You know, I don't know how many is on his subscriber list of um, American Minute. And some of you, as soon as I say American Minute, you know right away what I'm talking about because you, you know, you check your, you check your uh, website and you see that uh, it's pretty cool that uh, that I have the opportunity to have him on the show. I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, but more than that, I'm, I'm super excited for you. And why would I be excited for you? Well, I'm excited for you because, look, man, you this is not every day. You, not everybody can get to hear this guy speak. You know, he can only be in so many places at one time. And so uh, I, I just... Uh, I'm just excited for you. Tell you the tell you the honest truth. I, I'm very excited for you. I think that uh, it, it. We talk about national treasures, and I don't want to throw that around lightly. But this, folks, is a national treasure. Uh, people have said that about uh, David Barton and and you know uh, and, and other people out there. Uh, but I've got to tell you, uh, William J. Federer, Bill Federer, our guest on today's show, he. Uh, in in my estimation, is a national treasure, and and I'll tell you why I say that. And I'll tell you why I say that. Number one, everything that you hear come out of this man's mouth, everything that you hear him say, is fact checked times a thousand. It's extraordinary. I mean, you could trust what he tells you. And the other thing, I just think this is interesting. He he doesn't always take uh, – the way he goes about doing what he's doing is always entertaining and funny. And um, I never thought – the first time I heard him speak, I never thought that I would 
hey, this guy's a historian. He's not going to be funny. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I just didn't think that that would be the case. You wouldn't think a historian would be funny, but this guy's hilarious. But when it's time to get serious, um, so you find yourself learning and smiling and all of that, and, and that's a cool thing. But when it's time to get serious, he gets down and gritty and, 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 and tells you the truth that you've needed to know. Uh, our guest today, Bill Federer, he's, he's an American writer. He's from St. Louis, uh, Missouri. He's you know, raised there in South St. Louis. I found this interesting. He's the fifth of 11 children. He graduated from St. Louis University in 1980 with a degree in accounting and business administration. I find that interesting, too, because uh, one of the things that, that people throw um, at David Barton is that, well, you don't have a history degree. Uh, you don't have a seminary degree. You don't have a theology degree. You don't have this. You don't have that. And But this guy runs circles around these these professors and professionals and and all these people who who you know they've got the the job that says they know what they're talking about but they don't have the knowledge that says they know what they're talking about so so he's the fifth this this guy Bill Fetter you're about to hear from him uh is the fifth of 11 children 11 children you imagine and i don't know how many of the siblings went to college but look we we ought to ask this guy but i tell you who we we ought to ask him about is his parents you got 11 kids, and, and one of them is a world-famous guy, uh, you know, the fifth. That's, that's you know, darn close to the very middle. And so it's impressive. I don't know how many of his siblings went to college and what they're doing, but I can tell you this. This guy's done some amazing things. Look, he's written over 20 books. America's God and Country Encyclopedia. You know I love that, right, because God and Country uh, is one of my taglines, God and Country Radio Show. Uh, we have a Facebook page, God and Country Facebook page, uh, God and Country Radio Show. You type that in, you'll get right to it. Also, uh, if you're on Facebook, facebook.com backslash uh, smgreener. That'll take you there. And you can – I don't. I, I pretty much always have 5,000 friends. I delete about three to 500 every week or two, and then we bring more people on. Um, so if, if there's an opening, I click on – and I look on you, and I see if we know anybody – Similar, uh, look at your your site and figure out, you know, what you're all about, and, and then we bring you on board. So, uh, but anyway, all of that said to say, theninjapastor.com, theninjapastor.com. We have a blog there and all kinds of stuff. I wrote a book called Excellence Kill the Church, How Mediocrity is Destroying America. Very controversial book, and uh, I was excited to give that book to Mr. Federer. Um, and he was very gracious in receiving it, although, you know, I read the ink off the page of what every American needs to know about the Quran, a history of Islam in the United States. Uh, this is one of his books, and I'm telling you, uh, it's extraordinary. It's just absolutely extraordinary. And when you look at this, now I'm, I'm known uh, nationally and internationally as an expert on Islam, and, and I don't just throw that around like, oh, I'm an expert. You know, I've earned it. Uh, but the way Bill Federer has put this book together, now he's got other books out I think are, are fresher than this one, uh, but this one is timely as it gets, and, and he has a DVD set and a, a CD audio and, and, all, and all of those things. Plus, you know what you can do? You can go to uh, YouTube, and you can watch him. I mean, don't do it now because he's going to be on the show live. That would be silly. 
I don't want you to miss out. I'm just trying to help you. Good lands. Let me let me read you now. Look, one of my favorites is George Washington Carver. Well, Mr. Federer wrote a book entitled George Washington Carver: His Life and Faith in His Own Words. Um, look, that's that's huge. But American Minute. A lot of you, a lot of you folks know Bill Federer from American Minute, and you you can subscribe to that. It's free of charge to do, and every day you get some you get some powerful information in. It comes right to your inbox, your your email, and and all that. And he has a Facebook page. You click on that, click on like, and and you can take part in all that stuff. We'll talk more about that. But uh, I want to read you a really quick thing before he comes on um, that he wrote about five days ago. It's published in uh, World Net Daily. George Washington was born, and it, and it, it, I like the title of this. You know, I like catchy titles. Everything I write, I try to have a, a true but catchy title. And my blog posts and all that stuff. You can subscribe to my blog, by the way. It's free of charge. We don't sell your information. Don't don't do anything like that. Uh, but Washington's strong morals, George's that is. Bill Federer remembers faith and the character of the first president. George Washington was born February twenty second, seventeen thirty two. Washington was unanimously chosen as the army's commander-in-chief, unanimously chosen as president of the Constitutional Convention, and unanimously chosen as the first U.S. president. As general, Washington acknowledged God after victories throughout the Revolution, and as president, thanked God for the Constitution. October 3rd, 1789, this is what Washington said, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. I do recommend rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for the favorable interpositions of his providence we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been given, in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government. Now, Washington was Anglican, and after the Revolution, Episcopalian. George Washington's great-great-grandfather, Reverend Lawrence Washington, was an Anglican minister in Essex, England, and he lost his position when the Puritans won the English Civil War. George Washington's great-grandfather, John Washington, immigrated to Virginia and became a planter, politician, and militia leader. A lo- what? Hold up. I'm going to ask Bill Federer. Bill Federer, did you just say militia leader? Oh. <gasps> I thought that word was not a good word, the militia. Anyway, maybe we'll talk about that. Maybe we won't. We have so much to talk about. A local Anglican church was renamed Washington in honor of John Washington. When he died, John Washington left to the church a tablet with the Ten Commandments, on which he inscribed, Being heartily sorry from the bottom of my heart for my sins past, most humbly desiring forgiveness of the same from the Almighty God, my Savior and Redeemer, in whom and by the merits of Jesus Christ I trust and believe assuredly to be saved and to have full remission and forgiveness of my sins. George Washington's grandfather. Now this is this is our guest about to come on. Our guest, Bill Federer, wrote this, and this was just published about five days ago. George Washington's grandfather, Lawrence, was Anglican. George Washington's father, Augustine, served as vestrymen in the Anglican Truro Parish. George Washington also became vestryman in Truro Parish and, and was godfather in baptism to a niece and several nephews. 
As general, George Washington had the Declaration of Independence read to his troops, then ordered chaplains placed in each regiment, stating July 9, 1776, the general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor so to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. General Washington wrote at Valley Forge, May 2, 1778, to distinguish the character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to laud the more distinguished character of Christian. To the Delaware Indian chiefs who brought three youths to be trained in American schools, General Washington stated, May 12, 1779, you do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life and above all the religion of Jesus Christ. On October 2, 1775, General George Washington issued the order, any soldier who shall hereafter be detected playing at toss-up pitch and hustle or any other games of chance shall without delay be confined and punished. The general does not mean by the above to discourage sports or exercise or recreation. He only means to discountenance and punish gaming. On February 22nd, I'm sorry, February 26th, 1776, General Washington issued the orders, all soldiers are positively forbid playing at cards and other games of chance. At this time, a public distress men may find enough to do in the service of their God and their country without abandoning themselves to vice and immorality. On July 4, 1775, General Washington ordered, the general requires observance of those articles of war which forbid profane cursing, swearing, and drunkenness and requires punctual attendance of divine services. Wow! For for a not very Christian um, guy, a not very God-fearing guy and founder, uh, my goodness, I, I don't even know, I don't know what to say. Uh, that he If he was not a Christian, he's not a very good Christian. Or he's not a very good atheist. I mean, he's not doing it right. He is not doing it right. Maybe he just, I don't know, he sounds like a pretty smart guy, but sounds like there's an awful lot of God and Jesus. And, well, he was a deist. Well, it sounds like he's got a pretty strong church history. So I don't know. You know, you and I, uh, maybe we just, uh, maybe we're defining this wrong. I don't know. Maybe we are. Maybe I am. Who knows? So anyway, as recorded, the writings of George Washington, March 10th, 1778. Uh, they even put the time here. U.S. Government Printing Office. George Washington ordered at a general courts martial, Lieutenant Enslin of Colorado, Malcolm's Regiment, tried for attempting to commit sodomy with John Monhort, a soldier, and do sentence him to be dismissed. The service with infamy. His Excellency, the Commander-in-Chief, approves the sentence and with abhorrence and detestation of such infamous crimes orders Lieutenant Enslin to be drummed out of camp tomorrow morning by all drummers and fifers in the Army, never to return. And then, I don't know if you know, in his farewell address, 1796, Washington stated, Disorders and miseries which result gladly incline the minds of men to seek security. To seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual who turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. The spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments 
in one. Wow. You guys, you get that, right? You're, you're getting this. This is this is our supposedly not very Christian founder who was somewhat ambivalent about his faith. The spirit of all encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one and thus to create whatever the form of government, a real despotism. Let there be no change by usurpation, for though this in one instance may be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. George Washington added in his farewell address, 1796, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. Again, that's from AmericanMinute.com. You go to AmericanMinute.com, log in there. There's a place. It's free. Nobody sells your information. A little bit of tea. Again, Lady Grey tea. Throw your rocks if you want. So I'm a lady. Uh, with a little bit of honey in there. Soften it up a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm gentle. I'm soft. So <laughs> so what I'm telling you is, is this guy here that, that that's coming on with us, Bill Federer, he's he's getting linked up and, and all that, trying to uh, make sure he has a good connection and all of that stuff. Uh, he, you know, he'll, he'll be with us in just a few minutes. But this is a guy who understands history. And you say, well, why does that matter, man? I, I'm out of school. I'm done with all that. I don't, I don't need any of that. I'm just going forward from today. Hey, we got too many problems to go looking backwards. <clears throat> the problem is, 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 you know, and this has been said many times, I remember seeing lots of these memes um, talking about this in all, all kinds of social media. I get stuff from all over. And one of the memes was, you know, used to be you had to take you had to take civics. I mean, you guys out there remember this. My, I had civics, but I also had problems of democracy. There was actually a class with Mr. Smith called Problems of Democracy. And let me tell you what, that was an awesome class. It was an awesome class. I am telling you, uh, probably one of the best classes I have ever had in my life. Uh, it was so informative and so helpful, but it actually told you History. It actually gave you history, and you, you had the real stuff. You had the real stuff. By the way, welcome to our listeners in Alaska. It's awesome. I love having folks from Alaska. What a great place it is. Um, so we had, so we had these civics, and we had these lessons. We had all this stuff going on. And I'll tell you what. Um, it's very, very important to remember. Very important to remember that. You know, and I talk about this all the time on the show and different blog things that I write. Um, you know, civics, civics, and 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 social studies, and the study of our true history is absolutely critical, critical for our students to be learning this. Why? Why is this so important? Why is this so important? Because if they don't know this, the things that are being said right now. I'll tell you the truth. There's a lot of stuff uh, being said, even in debates. How, I don't know how many of you, show of hands, how many watched the debates and listened to the debates last night. I put myself through it, and I didn't like it. Truth be told, I didn't like it. 
you know, the, the American public, because they haven't been educated, especially the, the younger generation, they haven't been educated uh, truly. They don't have a concept, no concept of what's true and what's not true. So when when a uh, when a candidate or when somebody comes on a pundit comes on television and they say, uh, well, and they say this thing and and it and it's totally false, it's totally and completely false. What what happens? What happens? Well, a lot of those people believe it. They, and he said it with conviction. And, you know, you look at Donald Trump, you say, man, you know, he's getting them. He's, he's telling them that's what we need finally, somebody to tell them how it is. Well, the guy, come on. I'll vote for the guy if he's the candidate, no doubt about it. But I'm here to tell you. I am here to tell you. you got to be weary. Or, I'm sorry, you got to be wary. <laughs> I like that. Our, our guest from... Alaska says, who needs lamestream media? We got you, Doc. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to help. Glad to help. So the thing is, and I think this is important to really to really understand, is when, when the average person hears what's being said in these debates, they don't realize the only guy coming with facts here, and, and, and nothing against Rubio, but Rubio I don't think is the guy. Um, but Ted Cruz, in all fairness, I mean, the guy comes with facts. He comes with reality and, and he lays it out and i think i think to a great degree so does um ben carson god bless him you know nice man um a very brilliant guy uh, you know saved a lot of lives and and has done amazing things and certainly his record is extraordinary and which is not to say i don't think at some point politics uh would be a great thing for him but but in fairness in this um in this environment I have to tell you, you have to be able to talk faster. You have to be able to get your word out quickly. Yes, you can keep directing people to your website, but that's just not enough. It's just not enough. And you know what? Uh, our Alaska friend um, is is reminding us that the Dems really like Rubio. Well, that's enough. I mean, that's that's a little uh, that's a little nervous. That's a little nerve wracking, right? It's a little nerve wracking because when they like a guy. That tells me we have a problem here. There, there's a problem. We need to be wary of that. We need to be wary. So all that said to say this, you know, we come we bring it all full circle and we say, okay, this is this is what we're going to do here. This is what we're going to do. We're going to watch this debate, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to use our little box of global information, you know, all the information in all of the universe. Um, my friend has a, a, a thing for it. They say all the time, I can't remember what they call the, the little phone, but you know, you got if you have a smartphone, you have access to the internet, and there's all the, essentially almost all of the, the anything written in the world is available there. So it, it would be interesting to me, you know, if you sit there, and I originally thought this, and I thought this would be a good thing, you know, it's a good little study for folks that don't know the truth to sit there with their little, little uh, uh, you know, infinite open. And just check them as they're going through. But the problem is now is the Internet is so populated by bovine feces. There's so much stuff out there. And you know what happens? Uh, I tell you what. Let's go to commercial. I'm going to try to get a hold of Mr. Federer really quick. We're going to go to commercial really quick. I'll be right back.
If you wake up in the morning In a land where you are free You should think about the ones who fought Protecting liberty You should fly a flag in honor Of the price they had to pay Yes, every day throughout this land Should be Memorial Day Some gave all, they paid the price For freedoms here, they sacrificed They gave their lives for you and me Their graves remind us, freedom's not free If you watch your children playing In a land where freedom reigns In a land of purple majesty Above the fruited plains You should tell them of the soldiers Who had courage and were brave And fought in wars and battles To ensure all glory ways For some gave They paid the price For freedom's here They sacrificed They gave their lives For you and me Their graves remind us Freedom's not free Wow, there you have it. There you have it. Uh, Kay and Ron Rivoli, uh, Freedom's Not Free. I have to tell you, there are some extraordinary patriots if I ever saw one. So we got our technical issue taken care of, and we're bringing on uh, Mr. Bill Federer. And I, Bill, I have to apologize. I, I introduced you uh, before, and, and so they all know they know all about you. Now, I'm not going to go around the country and around the world where our listeners are and have them each tell you a little bit about them. We have folks from Alaska. We have folks from Germany. We have folks from New York, um, all over the, all over this country and then several around the world. We also have, just so you can know, we have several, uh, several United States Navy SEALs uh, out in theater uh, all around the world. We have some, some folks from uh, the Marine Corps, the United States Air Force. We also have an Army Ranger officer. Rangers lead the way. So we are privileged to have them joining us, and we are privileged to have you. Welcome, 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 Mr. Bill Federer. Well, Sean, it's an honor to be with you. Well, it's, you know, it's just me. It's just me, Bill. Don't be nervous. It's just me. It's just me. You've done this a thousand times. So uh, tell America a little bit about you. If you were to introduce yourself to somebody, and the first thing, you know, you had maybe two minutes to introduce yourself to them, what would you want them to know? Um, I write books on history and go talk about them. <laughs> wow, um, you didn't even about need 20 books. <laughs> um, I've written about 20 books over the last 20-some-odd years. Uh, several have become bestsellers. One of them sold over half a million copies. And I do a daily TV show called Faith in History that airs on DirecTV on the TCT network, and then a daily radio spot called American Minute that airs on the BOT radio network on over 100 stations and through Salem and uh, so forth. Also do a daily um, history 
article. It's posted on WorldNet Daily, WND.com, and then also send it out as a daily email that people can sign up for on my website, AmericanMinute.com. Awesome. That's a lot of stuff, and I'm not quite sure how you find time to even eat or maybe even breathe. That's a busy man, folks, and we're we're privileged that he would join us today. One of the things I, I think is so powerful about what you do is when you do what you do, especially if people have the opportunity to hear you speak live, um, you're a really funny guy. Uh, but you, but you, but you, you're. It's almost like a machine gun or drinking by a fire hose. And so what I think is fun is you hear you live and then buy your books and your DVDs and then get the, you know, the, the smaller pieces that as it's coming at you like a fire hose that you're like, oh, I can't remember all this. You know, I, I think it's a great combination. And your books are amazing. I have I have several of your books. And I was telling the audience before you came on uh, what every American needs to know about the Quran, a history of the Islam and the United States. Is one of my quickly became one of my favorite books. I read the ink off of it. Uh, I got it severely dog-eared and written in and bent back, and you know it's just it's just a mess at this point. But the book is laid out in such a way. Wow! I'll tell you what, folks. If you read this book, you there. you can't once you read the book, you can't deny the facts. And so I thought it would be great to have you on today to talk about a few things, uh some some questions that I have and some concerns that I have and how much ever time you have, we'll take whatever you got. Um I, I wanna impress upon the audience that we have here, and again this is a you know, an audience from and you speak to millions every day. Um I don't think this this audience is quite that, but I wanna impress upon this audience that the administration, the left and mainstream media, which I'm being redundant there, uh, and, and really sadly to say, many on the right, they're lying to us about Islam. And, and frankly, there's, I, I talked about, before you came on, I talked about how, um, and it, this was right before you came on, so you probably didn't hear this, I talked about there's no excuse nowadays to not know, even though civics <clears throat> class, I don't even think they teach civics anymore. Um, I was telling the audience about how I have I, problems of democracy. A, you had to pass problems of democracy and civics in order to graduate when I went to school. Now it's not the same. And, and, and let's face it, the revisionists have so torn away uh, from history and that kids don't even know. They don't even know. But there's no excuse for ignorance on the topic of, of Islam. And uh, I like your analogy if this was a stock pick. You'd research the history and performance before you bought anything. But if if you were to have the ear of the audience, which, quite frankly, you do, um, why do you think this is? Why do you think the left and and the Obama, the Hussein Obama administration, and mainstream media, and and sad, I'm sad to say this, a lot of people on the right, and I'm speaking of, you know, George Bush said countless times, Islam, we're not at war with Islam. Islam is a religion of peace. And so if you were to have the rear, what would you say to them to that? Well, it is a religion of peace. It's just their definition of the word peace is different than our definition. Our definition of the word peace is different groups getting along. Their definition of the word peace is when the whole world submits to the will of Allah. So to them, world peace means world Islam. So the word Islam means submission to the will of Allah. A Muslim is one who has submitted to the will of Allah. 
And they don't think there'll be world peace when the whole world has submitted to the will of Allah. Sort of like Abraham Lincoln said, we all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. And so in Islam, the world is divided in two. The half that has submitted and the half that is in the process of submitting. So the half that has submitted is called the Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam, the house of submission. The half that is in the process of submitting is called the Dar al-Harb, the house of war. So the non-Muslim world is supposed to be at war because it's in the process of being submitted. Now, a moderate Muslim thinks the world will submit to Allah later, maybe in the distant future, maybe at the end of the world, and since it's so far off in the future, they really don't take it that serious and they just want to live their lives. Fine, that type of Muslim has no problem living in a free democratic society and having you as a kafir infidel as a neighbor. The fundamental Muslim, on the other hand, they think the world is supposed to submit to Allah now. And they're really excited and they want to help make it happen. Now the dilemma we face in the West is the more we bend over backwards in unprecedented ways to show ourselves nice and friendly and accepting and accommodating and uh, re, you know respectful, and they view that as us submitting to them. In other words, uh, in Islam they have a concept, when your enemy shows weakness, that is Allah giving them to you. And so we bend over backwards thinking... We're being so nice. If they got to re reciprocate sometime, they see us bending over backwards and showing our neck, and they think, Allah's giving them to us. Okay, let's do it. And so when it's the law of the jungle where a lion's chasing a pack of zebras, and uh, the pack of zebras takes off running, but there's a slow one. He's sort of weak. And which one does the lion uh, jump on? The weak one. And so we have to understand that this is the way it has operated for 1,400 years. Um, one of the common things people are aware of is Muslims do terrorist attacks, beheadings in Oklahoma, uh, Fort Hood shooters, Boston bombers, San Bernardino killers. Uh, and immediately the president and the politicians say those killers do not represent true Islam. Yet the killers themselves are yelling Allahu Akbar, and they claim they are representing true Islam can tell us what true Islam is. One person, Muhammad. Muhammad was the best Muslim that ever lived. His life is actually called the Sunnah, which means the way or the example. And so if we examine Muhammad's life, we can get an insight into those that are trying to be like him. So his life went through three stages. At first, he was a religious leader in the pagan city of Mecca for 12 years, and he only makes 70 converts in 12 years. He gets confrontational. The people of Mecca decide he is a disturber of the peace, and they chase him out of town in the year 622 A.D. He has nowhere to go. He tries going to a city called Al-Taif. They pelt him with rocks and stones and throw dust at him, and little kids jeer and chase Muhammad out of town. He has no place to go. He is a Muslim refugee. He then goes north 210 miles to a Jewish city called Medina. Three Jewish tribes control Medina, and they're nice. They let Muhammad in as a Muslim immigrant. He goes to the minority neighborhoods, and he begins to organize a following amongst these pagans. 
we're familiar with the term of organizing in the community, and these pagan minorities have no voice in this Jewish-controlled government, sort of plays upon their victimhood, and they follow him. And so now, Muhammad goes to the Jewish leaders and pressures them to accommodate him and his followers politically. And the Jews do, they make a treaty, and now Muhammad is a political leader in addition to being a religious leader. Then Muhammad's followers back in Mecca, they get pushy, argumentative, confrontational, and threatening. They get chased out of town for disturbing the peace. They have nowhere to go. They are Muslim refugees. They go to Medina. The Jews are nice and naive, and they let them in as Muslim immigrants. And Muhammad allows his followers to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. So where Jesus said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt, Muhammad's attitude was, if they take your house, you retaliate, take their caravan. So he got a whole chapter of the Quran, it's Surah 8, chapter 8, on how to distribute booty from robbing caravans. It's still in there. He gets a fifth of the booty. And so the Meccans decide to send an army, a thousand soldiers, to escort and protect their caravan. And Muhammad, with 300 warriors, defeats a thousand at the Battle of Badra in 624 AD. This amazing victory, having been outnumbered three to one, convinces Muhammad to be a military leader. And he fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. He kills 3,000 people. He beheads 700 Jews in Medina. So within five years of him coming into Medina as an immigrant, there is not a Jew left in Medina. They've been chased out, killed, or enslaved. And then he goes to that city, Al-Taif, and he uses catapults, and he's hurling rocks into these cities. And they tell Muhammad that the catapult is killing innocent women and children. And Muhammad's response was, they are among them. So they got to be killed, too. So suicide bombers and ISIS killers and San Bernardino killers say it's okay to kill innocent people to advance Islam because Muhammad did. And since Muhammad is forever the standard of a perfect Muslim, Muslims today that want to be better Muslims, they want to be more devout Muslims, they're wanting to be like Muhammad religiously, politically, and militarily. So a nonviolent Muslim has actually backslidden from following Muhammad's example. Yeah, he's not Muslim enough. He's not Muslim and enough. So, They'll end up killing him because he's not Muslim enough. Correct. And so we see that there is freedom for all religions in America. But Islam is not just a religion because Muhammad was not just a religious leader. He was a political and a military leader. So a mosque is a religious building, a political building, and a military building. Bowing to Mecca is a religious bowing, a political bowing, and a military pledging of allegiance to another capital. And our effort in the West to split the religious side of Islam away from the political military side is we're trying to split Muhammad. Who are we to split their prophet? He was all three. And though there have been lots of Muslims that over the centuries have backslidden from following his example, we call them moderate Muslims, unfortunately, Today, the support and the attention and the media uh, elevation is given to those Muslims that are wanting to follow Muhammad's example. We call that getting radicalized. And does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. Well, so why, doesn't, see a... why doesn't it make sense to 
the president and his administration? I mean, what role is the president, Barack Hussein Obama, and his administration? I mean, what role are they playing here? Well, I tell people actions speak louder than words, and his actions show that he has an affinity toward Islam. And he has surrounded himself with Muslim individuals who want to reestablish the caliphate. What is the caliphate? Well, the supreme leader after Muhammad's death was called the caliph. And first one was Abu Bakr. A bunch of Muslims wanted to leave, and Abu Bakr says, sorry, you can't leave. And he kills thousands in the Ridda Wars, R-I-D-D-A, Ridda. It means the apostasy wars. This set in stone in Islam that you're free to join, you just can't leave. Sort of like Hotel California. Um, there's a Muslim imam in Egypt. He says, if they would remove the apostasy punishments of death for leaving Islam, Islam would have ended with the death of the prophet. Because all these Muslims wanted to leave now that Muhammad's dead. But Khalif Umar said, no, you can't leave. And so most uh, another Muslim that became a Christian, Elijah Muhammad, um, Elijah Abraham, uh, he changed his name uh, when he became a Christian. But he has livingoasis.org is his ministry. And he said, if you removed the apostasy laws that anyone could kill you if you leave Islam, he said 90% of Muslims would leave overnight. He says they stay in because any relative, even one they haven't seen in a few years, can show up at their doorstep and kill them. And so it's this peer pressure that keeps them in. Well, let's go back to Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad's life went through these three stages, and uh, they can be identified as immigrate, increase, eliminate. So he immigrated into the Jewish city of Medina as a religious refugee. He increased the number of his followers amongst the disadvantaged minorities, and then demanded political accommodation. And then he eliminated the previous civilization. And we see this being applied over 1,400 years and today. So there are 5 million Muslims that have surrounded Paris, France, in 751 neighborhoods. And they first came in as immigrants, and then they came over in larger numbers and started communities, and then they began to demand political accommodation, and then they've squeezed out all the previous French inhabitants. We see that the number one name for newborns in London, Milan, and Brussels is Mohammed, because they can have four wives, each wife has five kids on the average, and they sign them up for welfare. The number one crime in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark is Muslim uh, men raping European women. Most of southern Holland is now Moroccan Muslim. Ten years ago, there were three mosques in Germany. Today, there's over 200 and growing. And I spoke in Detroit uh, and afterwards was visiting with people. And the story of a lady who had a ministry to pregnant moms. And so she shows up at a Muslim house with a little present for the pregnant Muslim mom. While she's there, out of a bedroom comes another pregnant Muslim mom. Out of a bedroom comes another pregnant Muslim mom. Out of a bedroom comes another pregnant Muslim mom, all pregnant by the same man. He is practicing Sharia law in his house in Dearborn, Michigan. And then someone comes to my book table and says, oh, Fazl bought a bunch of houses on the street, has a wife in each one. They go down to the welfare office and say the husband's not around, and they get these welfare checks. And he visits these wives and they have more kids, and the checks keep getting bigger and bigger, and all the kids playing in the street are his kids. He's practicing Sharia law on his block. 
Then the Muslims take over several blocks and they vote in the school board. And now they have the little girls wearing the burqas and having their Muslim prayers in the public schools and the ACLU is silent. And then they take over several more blocks. They vote in the police department, fire department, and like Hamtramck, Michigan, they vote in a majority Muslim city council. And now they have their minarets and their loudspeakers and their calls to prayer five times a day, no different than Pakistan and all the former Polish inhabitants of these neighborhoods have been driven out. And so we see it's this three-step process. The first ones come in as immigrants, and they're nice. And people said, I've met them. There's not, they're nice. There's nothing to worry about, so let more in. More come in. They gravitate together, form a community, and then an imam shows up and says, okay, we need to start taking this serious. Ladies start wearing the burqas. Um, a burqa has the same psychological effect on non-Muslims as gang colors. It's a statement that the neighborhood is changing. And then we see that these Muslim imams begin to uh, cause the Muslims to practice their faith more, and then they eventually demand political accommodation. And then there's always that one stickler that says, I'm going to move out of this neighborhood. I grew up here. And that's when Muslim youth do random violence, and there's no witnesses, because no Muslim family will dare testify against another Muslim family on behalf of some coffer infidel. And so they do their random rapes and crimes, and there, there are no witnesses. So in Paris, they put up signs, ZUS, Zonas Urbanas Sensibles, Sensitive Urban Zone, which means enter at your own risk. <laughs> because if you go in there and get raped or stolen from, there are not going to be any witnesses, because no Muslim is going to testify for you on behalf, against another Muslim. And so there's a 1,400-year track record. People forget that Egypt used to be completely Christian, evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until the Muslim leader Amir ibn Alas invaded. People forget Syria used to be completely Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. The name Christian was first used in Syria until Amir ibn Alas, I'm sorry, a Caliph Umar conquered it. And then Caliph Umar conquers Jerusalem, which had been a Byzantine Christian city for three centuries since Constantine. And then they conquer North Africa. There used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. Morocco, Algiers, Tunisia, Libya. It was all Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian. I mean, St. Augustine of Hippo was from Carthage. Today, that's Tunisia. But the Christians had embraced a version of separation of church and state. It was, their, it was called pietism, hyperpietism. In other words, if you really became a Christian, you were expected to give away all your money and live in a cave. Give away all your money and live as a poor bum. Give away your money and live in a monastery or build a platform in the desert and bake in the sun thinking you're denying your flesh and getting holier. But it was this me-focused salvation that sort of abandoned any responsibility to the community. And as a result, Islam just swept through North Africa in one generation. And then in the year 711, the Muslims invaded Spain. Some warring Christian Visigothic kingdoms in Spain uh, one of them had the bright idea to go across the Strait of Gibraltar, gather the Muslim hordes, and bring them across to help their side. And the Muslims are like, shoot, while we're here, let's just conquer the whole thing. No, the Muslim, warri Muslim warriors are on horseback with stirrups and scimitar swords. The Europeans are still on foot. So in 10 years, they conquer all of Spain, 
carry away thousands into slavery, conquer southern France. They're finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., just 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 A.D. They go from Arabia to Paris in a military campaign. And this is their setting up their ISIS, their Islamic State, their caliphate. And uh, Charles Martel, the grandfather of Charlemagne, stops them at the Battle of Tours, and it takes 700 years to drive the Muslims out of Spain. Anyway, all of that is the first Arab Spring. And again, since these are Muhammad and the rightly guided caliphs, the first leaders after Muhammad's death, they were all warriors, Muslims today that says, hey, I want to be a true Muslim. I want to go back to the way it was with Muhammad and the rightly guided caliphs. I want to follow them religiously, politically, and militarily. Let me ask you a quick question here, and this is just grating on me. And I think that, um, by the way, Right Wing Watch, they don't like you, Bill. They don't like you, Right Wing Watch. They've got a whole page all about, we don't like him. And I think that's nice. Any enemy of Right Wing Watch, I think, has got to be a friend of mine. So, um, you know, it's funny. People are tweeting me things and sending me stuff here, and they're like, oh, man, Right Wing Watch really hates this guy. Well, then probably that's a, that's a good thing. So can you help end this red herring argument of the Christians caused this, you know, this whole problem with Islam? Look, look. No matter what the the Christians, no matter what the you know Muslims do, the Christians they did all this because you know what the Crusades and all that stuff. You know, and they always name stuff. They're always really ambiguous about it. But you know, we had the Crusades, and that's why the Muslims are mad. And that's why they had to do what they had to do. You know, we're not blameless here. We are not blameless uh, as Christians. So you can't be throwing rocks at at Islam. That's that's not right. They're just doing what they can to preserve their culture. It's really all about culture. And I really want to nail this down because there's this constant claim that Christianity and Islam are somehow co-conspirators in evil. That Islam, they're only doing this because America's bad. And Christians and Jews, well, they've treated Islam poorly, so therefore we're mad. And because Britney Spears runs around without underpants on, we're a poison society. We're not at Islam's level of purity and virtue. So what do you say when somebody says, yeah, well, you know, the, the reason why Islam is like this is because the Christians treated them so badly. You know, they went around killing them all this time. Well, everything I just shared with you took place uh, in the 600s and the 700s. The Crusades did not start until 1095, almost the 1100s. So we're talking 500 years before the Crusades. The Muslims had Crusades. The Muslims had 14 centuries of Crusades. The Muslim Crusades killed an estimated 240 million people. And so what it was, was Pope Gregory put out a plea that anybody that could fight should join Charles Martel. And when Charles Martel stopped them, at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., it saved Europe. In other words, we would be speaking Arabic right now if it had not been for Charles Martel stopping the Muslims at the Battle of Tours. We'd be like Egypt, where the Muslims actually cut out the tongues of anybody caught speaking Coptic. That's how they eradicated the entire Egyptian Coptic language, and they brought in their Arab language and supplanted it. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, so... They enslaved over a million Europeans. There were entire Catholic orders throughout Europe during the Middle Ages 
called the Trinitarians and Mathurians. The head of the order was called the Ransomer, and they would collect alms and donations and go under a white flag to North Africa to get your friend back. Then the Muslims enslaved an estimated 180 million Africans. Mm. Muhammad was a white Arab, and there are hadiths where he would lift his arms to say a certain prayer, and they would see the whiteness of his armpits. Another hadith said... um, a guy was on his donkey going to early morning prayer, and he says, I saw the, rubbed up against the prophet, I saw the whiteness of the prophet's thigh. So Muhammad was a white Arab, and he owned African slaves. In Arabic, there's one word for African and slave. It's abd, A-B-D. It means level with the earth. Hmm. And so here we see that they would go into these villages and castrate the men, make them eunuchs, sell the women into the sex trafficking. They had slavery for eight centuries before America was ever discovered and um, Spaniards enslaved Native Americans for about 50 years, and then when they outlawed enslaving the Native Americans, the greedy uh, plantation owners say, where can we get more slaves? And someone said, hey, let's buy them from the Muslim slave markets. So every black person brought to the Americas was purchased from the Muslim slave markets. Hmm. And um, anyway, so you mentioned about Christians killing people and Muslims killing people. So what I think it's important is let's not compare the followers. Let's compare the founders. If your computer acts up, what do you do? Well, you reload the software the way it was when you bought it. If your religion acts up, what do you do? You go back to the way it was when it left its founder. And so let's compare the founders. Christianity is the largest religion in the world, about 33%. Islam is the second largest religion in the world, about 22%. Followed by 16% unaffiliated, 15% Hindu, 7% Buddhist, down to 0.2% Jewish. So let's compare, not the followers, let's compare the founders of the two largest religions in the world. Jesus never killed anyone. Muhammad killed an estimated 3,000 people, including beheading those 700 Jews in Medina. Jesus never owned slaves. Muhammad got a fifth of the slaves taken in battle. Jesus never married. Muhammad had anywhere from 11 to 22 wives, slave-wise concubines. The youngest wife was six years old. Jesus never tortured anyone. When Muhammad conquered Kaibar, the last Jewish settlement in Arabia, the Jewish chief refused to tell where the tribe's treasure was hidden. So Muhammad had him stretched out on the ground, and they kindled a fire on his chest. He still wouldn't tell, so Muhammad had him beheaded. Jesus did not allow his disciples to rape anyone. Duh, Muhammad did, and there's all these hadiths that talk about how they did it. Jesus never forced anyone to follow him. Said something difficult, many disciples walked with him no more. He turns to Peter, says, you want to go too? Peter says, where else can I go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. Jesus was willing to let them go. Muhammad said, whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. So you're free to join, you just can't leave, which highlights an interesting point. The Judeo-Christian faith is based on a freedom of conscience, that God loves us and he wants us to love him back, but love by definition must be voluntary. And so he has positive and negative motivations, blessing us or withholding the blessings to try to get us, but he will not force our free will because the moment it's being forced, it's no longer a love response. And so, but the God of Islam, it has no concern about if you have a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart, it wants outward, external, physical compliance. And so uh, Jesus 
uh, forgave insults. Dying on the cross, saying, Father, forgive him. Muhammad avenged insults. A guy named Ibn Qatal had made up poems making fun of Muhammad, had two slave girls reciting the poems. Muhammad was insulted by the poems, so Muhammad ordered them murdered. Uh, Jesus taught that God was our father. In Islam, it's blasphemy to call Allah your father. Jesus taught we're children of God. In Islam, it's blasphemy to call yourself a child of Allah. Jesus taught we're made in the image of God. In Islam, Allah has no image. Jesus taught to have a personal relationship with God. In Islam, it's blasphemy to even want to have a personal relationship with Allah because he's transcendent and unknowable. Jesus did not permit his disciples to lie. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He said, told the Pharisees, if you're your father, the devil, he was a liar and the father of it. Proverbs 6 says that uh, six things the Lord hates, yea, seven, it says, are an abomination. And it says, uh, proud look, a lying tongue. God the Bible, God of the Bible hates a lying tongue. The uh, book of Revelation says that he that loveth and maketh a lie will not enter the new Jerusalem. Yet Muhammad permitted lying. It's called takia, sacred lying, holy deceit. You're obligated to lie to the infidel so that you can subdue them. A story. So, Bill, let me let me interrupt you here for a second to give you give our folks an example of takia. So, so when Muslims get on uh, radio and TV and and the internet wherever else, and they say, "Well, we're we're peaceful, we're peaceful people. We we don't want to hurt anybody. We just want to come here and live a good life and do things. You know, we want to do things our way, but we don't hurt anybody. No, uh, just like Keith Ellison. You know, when Keith Ellison. I don't know, you know, if, if anybody's listened to this show for very long, knows that we have Muslims in our government. And they laid their hand upon a Quran when they were sworn in. I know you probably have an issue with that. I probably do, too. Well, there, there's two issues. One is the Quran says that it is superior to every man-made law because it came directly from Allah to Muhammad. So it is divine. And so they think that it's their job to have their divine Sharia law to supersede all man-made law. Second problem, the Quran says it's okay to lie to make the Quran superior to the man-made law. So how can you swear your hand, put your hand on a Bible and swear to uphold the Constitution, but you're swearing upon a book, the Quran, that says it doesn't believe that these man-made laws uh, or should be there, and that you can lie to supplant it. Here's a story. A chieftain was planning on attacking Muhammad, and he goes to his warriors, and he said, who will rid me of this chieftain? His one warrior said, I will if you permit me to lie. Muhammad said, go. So the warrior goes to the chieftain and says, I've left Muhammad. He's a heretic. I want to help you, but they're after me. And the chieftain says, okay, you can spend the night in my tent. You will have my whole army surrounding you. You will be safe. In the middle of the night, the warrior tiptoes over and beheads the chieftain, hmm. grabs his head, runs all the way to Muhammad, gives it to him, and says, oh, prophet, all his face is shown upon you. And Muhammad said, no, all his face is shown upon you. And Muhammad gives him his staff and says, you can lean on this in the day of judgment, because on that day, many people won't have anything to lean upon. Muhammad approved of lying to your enemies so that you can gain the advantage and behead them. Another story is one of Muhammad's warriors was captured, and he was forced to renounce Muhammad. 
He later escaped and went back to Muhammad, and Muhammad forgave him. And Muhammad said, if they make you turn, turn, but don't turn in your heart. In other words, it's okay to deny Muhammad in a pinch to save your skin, as long as you don't fight against Islam. In other words, it's okay to say you're not a Muslim in order to get elected, but then everything you do once you're elected is to help advance Islam. And so, in other words, you can give speeches saying one thing, but in your actions, you're actually promoting Islam. Mm -hmm. I was reading through Miguel de Cervantes. He is the uh, one who wrote Man of La Mancha, Don Quixote. And uh, Miguel de Cervantes, it was a contemporary of William Shakespeare, but he was in Spain while Shakespeare was in England. And Miguel de Cervantes, in his early career, was fighting in the Battle of Lepanto, and afterwards captured, and afterwards made a slave in North Africa, and he was ransomed back by the Trinitarians, that Catholic order. But then he writes his novel, and in the first chapters of it, he talks about how the Muslims raided the Mediterranean. The Muslim pirates actually raided Rome, Italy in the year 846 AD. 11,000 Muslims invaded Rome and mm. trashed the Basilica of St. Peter's, which was the church before they built the Vatican. And the Muslims trashed the grave and the bones of St. Peter and St. Paul. And so that's why some think it's sort of interesting that you know the Pope said you shouldn't build a wall, but it was Pope Gregory, or no, I'm sorry, Pope, Pope Leo, that decided to build the wall around the Vatican because it was outside of the city of Rome. Why? To protect it from these Muslim terrorists. Mm. And, um, and so here's Miguel de Cervantes, and he's writing in his book. He talks about whole coasts of Italy where there's not a woman of childbearing age for generations because these Muslim pirates would come up, so like Boko Haram, round up all the women they could find, take them back and sell them into the harems. And, um, and if one of the Muslim warriors was captured, he would say that he had converted to Christianity. And the Christians would naively believe him and let him go. And he would go back and get on the Muslim pirate ship and raid another city. Right. It was a get-out-of-jail-free card. You just lie to these naive Christians. Anyway, <laughs> but um, people say we're all worshiping the same God. Well, let's see. Christianity, the largest religion in the world, says that you believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place, that he is the Lamb of God, and he took the punishment for all your sins. If you believe that, you go to heaven. Well, Islam has an unforgivable sin called shirk, S-H-I-R-K, shirk. And they say that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you have committed the unforgivable sin called shirk that condemns you to hell. So, question, if we're all worshiping the same God, how can the same God say if you believe in Jesus, you go up, and if you believe in Jesus, you go down? Either God is schizophrenic, or we are talking about two different gods. And then we see another word to define is the word innocent. Muslims kill people. The president gives a speech, says they don't represent true Islam because Islam says it's wrong to kill the innocent. Well, let's define the word innocent. Innocent is a follower of the way of Allah. If you have rejected the way of Allah, you are guilty. And they're commanded to attack and kill you. Allah loveth not those who reject the faith. Be ruthless to the infidel. Make war on the infidel. Cut off their hands and their legs. And so when they say it's wrong to kill the innocent, it's code for it's wrong to kill faithful Muslims. Now, as you had mentioned earlier in the show, 
the fundamental violent Muslims that are following Muhammad's example, they view the backslidden nonviolent Muslims as having left the way of Allah. And so they view them guilty, and they have no problem killing the nonviolent Muslim the same way they have no problem killing the Jew or the Christian or the Hindu. Mm-hmm. And so, again, um, it, it's important for us to understand these definitions. Um, so, so, Bill, it, it, might fo- be 14... for us, it might be important for us to interject something, uh, and, and, and this has occurred, I'm sure, to people here. My goodness, we probably shouldn't enter into, I don't know, treaties with Muslims. Because you know right. what? They can't enter into a treaty. By their own faith, they can't enter into a treaty. Well, yeah, you're bringing up a very critical point. Uh, in Islam, they have a concept called hudna, H-U-D-N-A, hudna. And that means when you're weak, you make treaties until you get strong enough to disregard them. Mm-hmm. And so they go back to Muhammad when he first came into Medina, and he was a refugee, then he organizes these minorities, and then he makes a treaty with the Jews. Well, five years later is when 10,000 of the Meccans come, try to stop Muhammad. And Muhammad's version of roadside bombs and IEDs was he dug potholes and trenches all around the city of Medina, which rendered the superior cavalry of the Meccans useless. You can't charge your horses and camels across a field full of potholes and trenches. They'll break their legs. Mm-hmm. And so it throws off the battle strategy. So Muhammad goes to some of these pagan tribes at night, and he bribes them, and they slip away. He goes to some of the other pagan tribes at night, and he threatens them, and they slip away, sort of the Chicago politics, the bribe or the bullet. Then it gets freezing cold for a week, and the Meccans lose heart and decide to retreat and bring their troops home. And so when the Meccans retreat, it leaves a power vacuum, very similar to a couple years ago when our president declared war in Iraq and Afghanistan was over. And he withdrew all of our American troops and left a power vacuum and questioned, did they all get peaceful after that? No, they went into high gear and violence with ISIS. And so we uh, see that in Muhammad's case, when the Meccans retreated, uh, that's when Muhammad went back into the city of Medina. He breaks his treaties with these Jews, confiscates their property, chases them out of town, enslaves them, and then brings uh, at least 700 of the men into the town hall uh, square, and he beheads them. And so... Uh, the concept is hudna, when you're weak, you make treaties until you get strong enough to disregard them. And so here we are twisting Israel's arm to make a treaty with the surrounding Muslim countries when their whole concept of treaty is just a ceasefire to restock missiles. Here we are entering into a treaty with Iran when their whole concept of a treaty is just to put your enemy off so you can finish your nuclear program. And it's a, we, we, the definitions of these words is very important. But uh, after, so the, we, we mentioned the first Arab Spring, uh, and then there was the Turks. The Turks convert to Islam, and they invade into what is today Turkey. Back then it was the Byzantine Christian Empire. All seven churches mentioned in the Book of Revelation, uh, Smyrna and Ephesus and Philadelphia, all those churches were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. And I don't and, think uh, those Christians know that. And you read the New Testament. And there's Paul writing a letter to the Ephesus and Galatia and Corinth and Philippi. All those cities were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. And so the Christians in Greece beg the Catholic West for help. 
and the West sends help. It's called the what? The Crusades. Mm -hmm. And so the Crusades are a response to the Muslim Crusades. Here are these Muslims conquering all these Christian areas. And the West had been sitting on its hands, not helping. And finally, they said, look, um, uh, matter of fact, one of the stories is uh, the most popular Greek saint was St. Nicholas. He lived during Roman times. He gave to the poor. And so these Greeks would leave presents for each other anonymously on the anniversary of St. Nicholas's death, which was December 6th of 343 A.D. But it was just a Greek thing until the Muslims invaded, and they would destroy Christian graves, the Christian churches, the Christian monasteries, the Christian museums, very similar to what they're doing in Syria and Iraq right now. Just, what, a month ago, they blew up the 1,300-year-old mm -hmm. Iraq monastery. And, and so as they're doing this and blowing it all up in Greece is when Greece has to humble itself and beg the West for help. And you have to understand the dynamics. The Greeks thought they were the true Christians because they spoke Greek, the language of the New Testament. Their land was where John spoke and Paul spoke. And said, so they viewed the Catholic Latin West as the church split. So it was a very big humbling for these Greeks to beg the Catholic West to send help. And, the, and they do. So St. Nicholas, so they're destroying these churches. They move his remains in the year 1087 from a city called Myra over to Italy to a city called Bari, B-A-R-I. And they build a big cathedral, and Pope Urban II is the one who dedicates the cathedral. And that name may sound familiar to some because it's the same Pope Urban II that goes to the Consul of Claremont in 1095 A.D., and he begs these European kings. He said, Jesus said, leave the 99, go after the one. So leave your country and go after these Christians that are being killed by these Muslims who are invading Greece. And so the Christians send help. It's called the what? The Crusades. There was nine major crusades in 200 years. Richard the Lionheart led the third crusade, left his brother King John in charge of England. We're familiar with that story. Um, St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri is named after him. He led the Seventh and Eighth Crusades. He was King Louis the Ninth of France. And uh, the Crusades saved Europe. What do you mean the Crusades saved Europe? Well, the way Muslims would attack was divide and conquer. If they would have told all the Jews in Medina that within five years there would be no Jews in Medina, they'd have set aside their differences and teamed up together to stop Muhammad. But because they, Muhammad got offended at one of the Jewish tribes, the other two stood back, and he was able to confiscate their property and chase them out of town. The other tribe said, well, let's just keep our heads low. Maybe he won't notice us. Then he attacks the second Jewish tribe, and the big one says, well, you know, that was always a thorn in my side, and they were a bother to me. And, you know, and then finally there's the last Jewish tribe, and there's nobody to come to their rescue. So it's a divide and conquer, the way the Muslims conquered Egypt. The Byzantine Christians had been persecuting the Egyptian Coptic Christians. And Amir Ibn al-As comes in and says, hey, we'll help you drive out those terrible Byzantines. And the Coptics say, sure, come on, you want to help us? Come on in. Well, they came in and they drove out the Byzantines, and then they decided to stay and conquer the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Had they come in and says, you know, we're, we're going to get rid of all Christians, the Coptics and the Byzantines would say, hey, let's set aside our differences and stop them. And, and when they were invading Spain, there were some warring Christian Visigothic kingdoms. And one of them brought, went across the Strait of Gibraltar to gather the Muslims to help their side. And that's when the Muslims conquered it all. And so the way they would conquer is they'd pick on one kingdom, 
And the other kingdoms would say, well, at least he's not picking on us. And then he would pick on another one, and the other ones would sort of stand by and says, well, at least he's not noticing us. Maybe one, you know. What the Crusades did was cause the Europeans to see the big picture. And they said, well, I may not like the English and the Spanish and the French, but I'll work together with them against these Muslims invaders because they want to kill us all. Very similar to the 13 colonies in America did not get along, and they would chase each other out of each other's colonies. But then they saw the bigger picture, and they realized they had to work together against the king of England, and it created this idea of united states. So the Crusades actually caused the Europeans to see the bigger picture of something called Christendom, or the very concept of Europe. They didn't view themselves as Europe. They viewed themselves as all these little kingdoms, Wallachia, Moldova, Bulgaria, and things, so forth. So the Crusades gave birth to the idea of Europe and saved Europe. Well, when the Crusades end, again, 14 centuries of Muslim Crusades, two centuries of European Crusades. The Muslims pick up where they left off, and finally in 1453, the Muslims conquer Constantinople. It was the capital of Europe where the Black Sea empties into the Mediterranean. And when Constantinople falls... In the year 1453, it ends the land trade routes to get from Europe over to India and China. People forget Marco Polo went from Venice, Italy to China in the year 1271. Marco Polo brought back to Europe spaghetti noodles, coal burning rocks, gunpowder came from China, fireworks. Talked about the Chinese having pinatas and thread from worms, silkworms. Chinese invented the compass, the wheelbarrow, the Pony Express. China invented paper from tree pulp rather than from Egyptian papyrus reeds. And what did China do with this paper from tree pulp? They printed the first paper currency. You have currency in your wallet? It was China that first had paper currency during the Wan Dynasty. And that's why they call their currency the Wan to this day. So China was technologically superior, and Marco Polo was bringing word of this back in the year 1271. But by 1453, the Muslims conquered Central Asia, and they conquered Constantinople. This cut off the land trade routes to get from Europe to India and China, again, 1453. So this is when the Europeans decided to look for a sea route to get to India and China, and in 1492, a guy named Columbus runs into some islands. He's convinced he's in India, so he names the people he meets the Indians. Think of it. We never would have called Native Americans Indians if it had not been for Islamic Jihad and the ISIS, the Islamic State, cutting off the land routes to India. And so uh, as the Muslims were invading into Greece, the Greek scholars were fleeing because their museums and their churches were being destroyed. Well, in the late 1400s, they're fleeing with all their Greek stuff to Florence, Italy. And this flood of Greek refugees coming into Florence, Italy with their Greek art literature and, and music. And this is what we call the Renaissance. The Renaissance is a rebirth, a rediscovery of Greek culture. Mm -hmm. but, the Greeks, but the Greek scholars also flee with their Greek New Testaments. And so now, in the late 14, early 1500s, the European scholars translate the Bible not just to Latin, but all the way back to Greek and this laid the foundation for something in 1517 that Martin Luther started called the Reformation. And in 1529, 100,000 Muslims surround Vienna, Austria. And so the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V of Spain, 
Is this interesting? I don't mean to be just keep going on. No, no, no. It is interesting. But here's the here's the crazy thing. This just occurred to me listening to you talk, which I don't know where your brain came from, but I don't. It's it's how you it's encyclopedic. It blows my mind. So you would think that Europe. I'm just saying. You would think Europe would see all these things happening with with Muslims and not welcome them in in the hundreds of thousands. You would think that they would see this, or at least by now, put the brakes on them. Why do you think they haven't? Well, the Europeans mostly understand this, and I've met and known lots of them. It's the politicians that have embraced this multiculturalism, diversity, pluralism. In a sense, multiculturalism, diversity, and pluralism is the AIDS virus of Western civilization. In other words, your body has an immune system. And if it's healthy, when a virus comes in, your white blood cells attack it. But if you have AIDS, then your immune system doesn't work. And the virus comes in, and it just gets to stay, and it gets to grow, and it gets to get serious, and until finally it threatens the life of your body, and you'd finally die. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a healthy body politic, and you have a group that comes in and says, we're going to start uh, uh, having polygamy. We're going to start marrying six-year-olds. We're going to have it so that you can beat women and do female genital mutilation. I mean, if any other group did that, it would be a tremendous outcry, but here they're doing it. Um, if they uh, say, well, we're going to honor, kill our daughters if they embarrass us, um, and we're going to call Jews apes and pigs. We're going If you have a healthy body politic, you're going to have policemen show up and say, you're beating your wife, you're under arrest. But if you have AIDS, multiculturalism, pluralism, diversity, they're going to say, no, 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 you have to let them do that. That is their culture. But you're saying, but look what they're doing to these women. No, 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 you got to let them do it. It's their culture. It's like, but, 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 no. And so it's this immune system that has been paralyzed. Hmm. Imagine if the Bloods and the Crips and the MS-13 gang came into a neighborhood and started having pimps and prostitutes and child pornography, uh, and they started calling themselves a religion. Should our police say, oh, oh, you're a religion? Hmm. Well, I guess in that case, you can practice this in your neighborhood. You can have your you know, drugs and pimps and prostitutes. Well, what if the KKK or the mafia started calling themselves a religion? Oh, you're a religion. Oh, then you can do your lynchings, your vigilante justice, and all kinds of... What if Hitler would have simply called Nazism a religion? Oh, oh, Jews are untermenschen, well, uh, uh, under mankind. I guess you can teach that in our schools now. Uh, Leah, let's have a state uh, a curriculum so that we can teach that, that Jews, that would make no sense, yet that is exactly what we're doing. And so we have to understand Muhammad was a religious leader, a political leader, and a military leader. The religion of Islam, even though I don't agree with it, if they want to believe it, it's fine. It doesn't bother me, and it doesn't bother you how many times a day someone wants to pray, what direction they want to pray, and what they think their next life is going to be, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, having a 72 virgins or not. What does concern us is when it goes into the realm of political and military, when they want to have their political laws and that do not have any concept of equality, and they want to have military laws where they want to wipe out the Jews and they want to wipe out and, and dominate every country to put in their Sharia law. That's where there's a problem. And so since Islam is a threefold system, uh, we need to have 
politicians smart enough to say, we'll allow the religion, but we're not going to allow the political military system. The key trick that is being used is they use the same word for all three, a way of explaining. The word light, L-I-G-H-T, what does the word light mean? Well, light, uh, that would be a source of illumination. Well, a source, that's in, in grammar, that's called a noun, that's a thing. Well, light is also an adjective, like light as a feather. It's a descriptive word, the opposite of heavy. And then light is a verb, like you're going to light a fire, light a match, light a stove. And so light, spelled L-I-G-H-T, is one word with three meanings. It's a noun, an adjective, and a verb. Well, Islam is one word with three meanings. It's a religious system, a political system, and a military system. And so the there are most of the Muslims just want to be religious Muslims. There are Muslims posing as religious ones when they have a goal of being political and militant. So in other words, the Muslim Brotherhood wants us to uh, treat them like a noun, yet they want the freedom to act like an adjective and a verb. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, and so we have to... Uh, grow up and realize that there are totalitarian systems in the world and that some of them are very creative in how they're able to dominate. But when you stand back and look at 1,400 years of history and you see, gee, wherever this group comes in, all freedoms leave, especially for those that don't agree with them, freedom of speech, freedom of dress, freedom of religion, right? We have this, you know, UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where you can join a religion, leave a religion, you can't leave, right? So they don't believe in that basic human right that the, uh, the United Nations was founded upon. This always blows my mind, Bill. The the uh, LGBT crowd, uh, how they are so sympathetic and silent on Islam. Um, I, I'm racking my brains trying to reach that group because, it, to me, what makes the most sense is... It, that they would, I would think they would be terrified, terrified of anything Islam coming to this country. Because, you know, they're the first that they go after, even though it, they're one of the greatest purveyors of homosexuality and pedestrian and all of those things. The young boys uh, being forced into sex, very young age. Uh, of course, that doesn't count, you know. But they, they they throw homosexuals off of even if they think you're homosexual, they throw you off of a roof and uh, you know they they bury people and throw rocks at their heads until they you know they're just their heads sticking out. They cut people's heads off and they love doing that with the lesbian, gay, you know, transsexual, bisexual, whatever crowd. Yet this crowd is just silent, and and, and even to the extent that you see people protesting. Uh, you know, uh, I'm gay and I love Muslims. You don't have a sign there that says, I'm, uh, how do we reach these people? Well, it's interesting. There's a notable homosexual in Holland who said, I only learned how to enjoy my liberties, never defend them. Hmm. And so uh, David Horowitz gave a quote of this unholy alliance between radical Muslims and the radical left. In other words, the radical left hates Judeo-Christian values, and the Muslims hate Judeo-Christian values, and so they see themselves as sort of working together. The problem is, once the Muslims get the upper hand, they have no problem killing the atheists, the homosexual, and so forth. 
Um, now, some definitions. In Islam, the homosexual is the man on the receiving end. <laughs> oh. Those that are perpetrating it don't consider themselves homosexual. They just consider themselves super macho. And they can have four wives. They can do it with little girls. They can do it with, you know. And so um, most boys in America, you get beat up by the bully. Well, in Pakistan, you get beat up and raped by the bully. Very similar to the prison system in America, right? It's this dominant type of uh, raping. And um, I've talked to numerous soldiers that have been in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they say that, yeah, Thursday night is man-boy love night, and we're guarding some ally that's some gang that we picked out, and they're marching the little little boys into their camp, and they do it all night long. And, you know, and, um, uh, and then we recently fired a um, Marine uh, because he found out that there was a Muslim that had a boy uh, tied to a pole in the backyard, and he was raping him. And uh, this Marine went in there and slammed the guy on the ground and took the boy down and gave him his freedom. And our government court-martialed that Marine. For And uh, the different spokesman says, you know, we went over and got rid of Saddam Hussein because we were told that he was treating the people bad, and we wanted the people to be treated better. And here we are. Uh, standing there and watching it, and we got our own government saying we're supposed to let them continue to sodomize these little boys that are being tied to poles in their backyard. We've lost the moral high ground. And here our government is now conditioning our soldiers, saying, oh, these are the rules of engagement and so forth. And, and if you see a little boy getting raped or you see a man beating his wife, you cannot intervene because that's their culture. Well, if we're not going to stand up for human rights... Uh, we have lost our moral high ground. We're just a mercenary force. And then we need to rethink what it is that we're doing over there. Mm-hmm. Well, and what th- we th- are doing over there is we're, th- that our, our government has now embraced the goal of reassembling the caliphate. And, um, and that's a whole other topic. So, so they basically want to reestablish this Islamic state, this caliphate. After World War I, the Ottoman Empire fell, and then finally in 1928 is when the Third Arab Spring started with the Muslim Brotherhood, and they said, let's reestablish this Ottoman Empire, and let's um, uh, target these secular leaders that are friends with the West. 1938, oil is discovered in Saudi Arabia, so they begin to fund all this. And then we would prop up these secular leaders who are friends with the West, but now our new administration is embraced the idea of getting rid of all these kings and presidents so the Muslim Brotherhood can take over these countries and reestablish this Islamic State. Uh, which brings me, and I, and I have to ask this, and I know this is, um, for some this is an unpopular question, but I suspect for you you've probably been asked it a lot. What do we do now here in the United States? What do we do with a president uh, which this is just me, Bill. I'm not putting this on you. I, I'm you're just you're a guest on the show and a guy I read and have a great appreciation of and, and an admiration of. But I certainly wouldn't want to put this on you. But this is what I believe. Just so I'm clear, what I believe, I believe Barack Hussein Obama is a is a Muslim plant, and he's bent on destroying America. And the the question is, what do we do? We've got all these Muslims. In the military, we've got Muslims in his cabinet for Pete's sake. We've got Muslims as direct advisors. Hillary Clinton, her her number one uh, advisors, whom Abedin, my lands, come on. So we've got all these people in very sensitive roles, military and government. What in the world do we do with them? Because I see this as a Trojan horse. 
Well, there is a concern that, uh, for example, Hugo Chavez had been bringing Muslim terrorists over from Iran to Venezuela, teaching them Spanish, sending them north. And over the last decade or two, they've infiltrated the drug gangs. They're coming across the southern border. They call them OTMs other than Mexicans. Pakistanis, Sauds, Somalis, Sudanese, all coming across the southern border. And then we have a big push with them being led across as, quote-unquote, children. And then they're being spread out to cities all around, uh, around the country. And now we're seeing Syrian Muslim men being brought in. Seventy percent of them are men. Most refugee crises, it's women and children because the men were killed in battle. And so we're bringing them in. Nobody's asking for them. I have gone to Spartanburg, South Carolina, Charlotte, Port Charlotte, Florida, and Wyoming and Boise, Idaho, all these different cities. And I get these reports of tens of thousands of Muslim men being brought in. And the communities are not asking for them. They're not prepared for them. Their school systems can't even speak their language. They're filling up the Section 8 housing. Uh, they're um, getting their free food and free clothes and everything. And so there's a thought. Are we being set up for an Arab Spring? Mm-hmm. Simultaneous Baltimore's, Ferguson, San Bernardino's all across America may be building up to a head before the next election. And in the middle of the crisis, somebody's going to say the president needs to declare this a national emergency. And if he does, then all the executive orders going back to John F. Kennedy's Bay of Pigs with a nuclear missile crisis in Cuba. And there's not enough time to wait for Congress. We just got to give the president uh, emergency control of the country. And there's been so many of these executive orders that we are literally one national emergency away from fundamentally transforming our form of government from the people ruling themselves back to uh, King. And um, that's a legitimate concern. I was in St. Louis, half an hour from Ferguson, and I lived there for years. I spoke in Ferguson, Missouri several times. 99% of the people riding in Ferguson were not from Ferguson. They were all the Occupy Wall Street people that were brought in and paid by some George Soros front group. I mean, poor people don't get the idea of holding hands across an interstate highway. It's like, hey, let's go hold hands. But uh, you read the, the fine print. Somebody alerted the police in these Democrat-controlled cities that their plans are – so the police go out there, the police stop the traffic, and then the police let them hold hands across the highway, and then all the news media shows up. And um, – and so we see that there's some staging going on. And um, uh, and so the same people were moved to Baltimore. It was a rent-a-mob. And the Democrat mayor uh, tells the police to stand down. I know a, uh, a pastor whose son's on the police department there in Baltimore, and, they, and his hand got all cut up because they told him to hold the barricade, but don't, don't fire back, don't stop him. And uh, so we see that the response in both cases was, the local police departments are inadequate. We need to federalize the police department. Mm-hmm. In other words, mm-hmm. give the president a standing army. Right? It's going to all be under federal federal control. And um, uh, so we're, we're uh, in a situation where we, we do have leadership in this country that seems to not like limitations. And Washington, in his farewell address, warned how the country would end. He said, usurpation. Usurpation is doing something you are not authorized to do, but people let you get away with it. Usurpation, though in one instance, is the instrument of good. It is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. So the worst thing you can have is a leader that says, I want to do something good, but I need a little more power to do it. And so I'm just going to take that power. And people say, well, he wants to do something good, so we'll just let him take the power. 
And then he wants to do something else good. There's another crisis we need. Oh, and so and gradually in these crises, the usurping of power gets more and more and more until you've transformed it from a country where the people rule themselves to power being usurped back into the hands of one person. Well, so, you know, I think about what I do and I'm, I'm just a regular dude. I don't, I'm not a pro at this. I'm, you know, all I did was write a book and travel around and talk about it. And then somebody said, Hey, you need a show. And so I did that. But as a country, one of the things I am very involved in is something called the Center for Self-Governance. The Center for Self-Governance basically is a, is a civics program that teaches history. It has five levels. I'm at level four, uh, just completed level four, and I'm about to do level five. And it teaches self-governance, but it also teaches you know our origins and things like that. So I think that's I think that's one very strong part of it. I think everybody should play a part of it. Uh, and and really learn from it. But the the problem is, in this country, it's a I even I call it a microwave society. It's you know you you you're pop, I don't know how I don't use microwaves, so I I don't know how long it takes to pop popcorn. But let's say it takes three minutes, and so three minutes I press in the three minutes I put it in there, and after thirty seconds have passed, I'm I'm like man, will this ever be over? This this infernal waiting. So people want it to happen really quickly and they and they but they want it to be something that they feel they like, they like how it sounds, they like how it looks, or presidential candidates. Hey, I don't I don't like how this guy sounds. He has a southern accent, he has a nasal tone, uh you know, he has a skinny nose, he has this guy sweats too much, this guy's too tall, this guy's too short, this guy you know, what in the world? How do you how do you cut through all that? Uh, to teach people, because look, you know, here's the thing, and you're not, I'm not, I know I'm not preaching to the choir here with you, you, or I'm preaching to the choir here because you know these things, you teach these things. I see Islam, honestly, I see it as our greatest risk of all of time, and because you teach this history so expertly, quite frankly, step by step by step by step, and you can't miss it. You can't miss the correlation to today. You can't miss that this is a repeat of what happened centuries ago. And here we are again. We're going through this again. My goodness, what in the world is wrong with us? We have things we can read. Yeah, that's right. Somebody in chat, Mary in chat, said if uh, Jesus Christ was running, they'd find fault with him. So, so when we have a guy or a lady, quite frankly, I'm not opposed to a, a, a lady president. I think we've had a couple um, potential female presidents that I think you know there, there there might be some there might be something there. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, my goodness, how in the world could we ever consider? Uh, I don't I don't even understand how she can still be running when she is. Uh, under investigation for such a very serious thing, uh, many serious things, quite frankly. So so the question I would pose to you is, of these presidential candidates, and I'm not asking you to endorse anybody. I, I, I don't want you to do that. But, but I know how your mind works, having read your books and listened to so many speeches. How do you go about selecting uh, a presidential candidate? And I, and I don't want to th- throw in... Republican or 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 Democrat or now I got to add in socialist. Uh, how do you select them? I mean, how do you? What's your criteria? What do you? What kind of filters do you put them through? 
Well, I think the ones that stand up for limited government, uh, the ones that understand um, the immigration threat. Um, I tell people, how much food do you eat in a year? Imagine if you had to eat that in one day. You'd die. So your body politic, how many people do you bring in? As many as you can assimilate. If you bring them in too fast, it overruns the system. Even Will and Ariel Durant, in their books on history, talked about the Roman Empire. And they said, had the Roman Empire slowed the immigration and had the immigrants go through their schools rather than their slums, uh, they could have preserved their Roman culture and just added new fresh blood, and it would still be going on today. But because the immigrants came over so fast, they kept their own language, their own cultures, their own traditions, and it ended up overwhelming, and the Roman Empire collapsed. And um, so you do bring in immigrants, you do bring in the fresh blood, but it needs to be just as fast as your body can assimilate it. Hmm. Do you, it and I'm, this is your opinion. I'm just asking you what your opinion is. It's, some people, when I'm interviewed, they ask me, do you think, Dr. Sean, do you think it's too late? And so I spend a lot of time, people ask me, and I ask myself sometimes, why am I doing this radio show? Um, am I of the opinion that I'm educating as many as possible about what is inevitably coming, or am I in the role of preventing it? Now, I'm trying to prevent it, but what do you think? I mean, where are we in this overall scheme of things, and how's this thing play out? Are we are we still able to prevent what is coming, what came for Europe before, and and what it, it seems like is here for us, but hasn't broken loose? You know, we're, we don't know, the, the regular American people, they don't know because they don't, they're so entertained. They're so busy driving from this thing to everything else. They don't even notice it. But are are we are we at that point? Are we? Is it still a mission where we are in the preventative? We're trying to prevent, or is it? Are we educating as to the inevitable? What's your What do you think? Well, I can only gain encouragement when I look at it from a spiritual point of view, and I go back to Israel. And I just finished a new book called Rise of the Tyrant, but I go through the different republics and democracies in history and how long they lasted and how they fell and how they ended up getting taken over by tyrants and kings and dictators. But Israel is an interesting example. 1400 B.C., they come out of Egypt. They come into the Promised Land. For 400 years, they do not have a king. They are the first nation that we have record of in world history where the entire nation is ruled without a king. Well, when there's a king, if you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. Well, when they come into the promised land, there's no king for 400 years. Everyone is equal before the law. And the law said there's no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, everyone to be treated the same. Male, female, made in the image of the creator. Lo and behold, Israel is the first example of a place where they have the concept of equality. That everyone you see is equal to you. There's no royal family to... Anyway, Israel's system worked as long as the priests taught the law. And when they stopped teaching the law, every man did what was right in their own eyes. The rubber man snapped back. They got King Saul. But if you look at it, Israel would went into the promised land with a covenant with God, and then Israel was blessed, and then Israel began to backslide and worship the gods of the surrounding countries. Then God would send prophets into Israel and tell them to repent. They wouldn't repent, and God would send judgment. And he would let them get overrun by the Amalekites, Hittites, Perzites, Termites, Mosquito Bites, 
parasites, all the ites, right? And then right. they repent, and God in his mercy would send a deliverer, and then they would renew their covenant and be blessed again. Thirteen times in the book of Judges, usually every 40 years. And so we look at America. America made a covenant with God. America was blessed with Eli Whitney inventing the cotton gin, Robert Fulton inventing the steamboat, Samuel Morris inventing the telegraph. I mean, we're just prospering. But then we begin to backslide. How? Slavery. Louisiana Purchase doubles the size of the country, and a bunch of territories want to come in as slave states. Uh-oh, slavery is going to expand. We thought it was on its way out, and so we have abolitionist side prophets telling us to repent of slavery. We don't. Judgment happens. Half a million people die in the Civil War. And then we have a day of fasting and prayer, and we renew our covenant, putting God we trust in our coins. But we've, we've gone around that cycle to major and minor degrees. And you think, of it, here we are, uh, 9-11. We go to church for two weeks, then we go back to shopping. Then we right. abort more babies. Then we're, we're, we're selling aborted baby body parts. I actually talked to the young man that did those videos, and he said that they do not anesthetize the baby because they do not want the drugs to damage the body parts that they're going to be selling. And so they give live birth to these babies and then cut open their bodies and take out these parts. And it's one thing it being done in secret. It's another thing with these videos being all across the country, over the YouTube, and everybody knows about it. In criminal law, if you know about if a crime takes place and you do not know about it, can you be held guilty? No, I didn't even know about it. How can you blame me? But if you know about a crime and it's being planned, it's being orchestrated, it's being committed, you know everything about it, and you're on the witness stand, and they, the prosecutor says, and you knew about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I knew all about it. And, and, and you did nothing to stop it? Uh, no. And you didn't, like, try to intervene? You didn't try to call the police? You didn't try to, no, I didn't do anything. In criminal law, you are called an accomplice. You share in the guilt, and God can uh, justly punish America because of us knowing about all these evils, and we allow it. We know about it, we allow it, and therefore the guilt comes upon us, and God can be a just God in judging us as a nation. What do we do? Well, we repent repent uh, individually and as a family and as a church and as a country and turn back to the Lord. And so I think that's where we're at. And um, so there's always hope. The different books in the Bible, Jeremiah and, and, and Ezekiel, you know, Jeremiah 18, it says, if I pronounce judgment on a country and they repent, I'll withhold the judgment that I was going to give. And then he goes on to say, but if I pronounce blessings on a country and they decide they're going to sin, he says, I'll change it and I won't bless them. And so uh, can we can we turn things around? Yeah, I think if enough people wake up and uh, take responsibility for what's going on, in America the people are the king. The politicians are our servants. And so you don't look to the you don't look to the servants to fix things. You look to the king. The king is the people. The king are the people that are listening to this program. And each one of them is individually accountable to God to fix this mess. You think, what do I do? Ask God. He's got a plan for every single person. Somebody, uh, there's something that each person can do. And, um, and we need to individually take responsibility. Well, and the thing is, is uh, and this was just sent to me by one of our great listeners, the sad part of this is th- this whole part of history, this period in history, when when this country fails, when the United States fails, 
There's nobody to come save the world. We're, we're the last great hope. We're the last great moral force on earth. Yet, like you say, we are cutting. We're allowing this. Now, I'm not doing this, and I and I and I hate it. I despise it with a passion. But we're allowing babies, the most innocent on the planet, to be cut and torn asunder just to salvage their body parts for money. And and you know, I, I have to think, Bill. I have to think that the reason we're so silent is because we're afraid of being called uh, right-wing extremist, anti-government. You know, uh, all of these things that the, the, the patriots up in Oregon and in Nevada were called, the Hammonds and and and, and uh, the Bundys, and, and and God bless Lavoie Finnicum. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're called every name in the book. And, and I guess this is why people don't go. They say, well, that's, that's not very kind to go to um, to go to an abortion clinic. I think it's uh, to be honest, I think it's a little late. By the time you go there, it's a little late, but I guess it's the last spot. It's the last chance you have to try to change somebody's heart. Um, but we're afraid to go en masse because why? We don't want to be called names. We don't want to be right-wing extremists. We don't want to be people uh who are uh, bad people. We don't want to be that. So we what we want to do is we'll just pray for them in silent. We'll we'll just, you know, we'll pray and we'll we'll try to hire some political experts. We call them politicians. And we'll just say, "Hey, you know, we want to make sure you're anti-abortion, right? Okay, yeah, you're hired." And then we go back to doing whatever we're doing and we don't we're silent still. And yeah, we don't like to see the pictures on the internet. We don't like to see that come into our Facebook feed or our Twitter feed of the of the cut up baby and to and and to hear something like what Bill Federer just said, folks. I don't know how many of you out there realize this. I was aware of it. I'm very involved involved in this movement, but they don't anesthetize the babies because it'll damage the tissue. They say no, we can't we can't take the pain away because if we do that, the thing that we use to take the pain away damages our ability to make money off of this innocent child. When I look at that, I think, what civilization, and, and you know, Bill, you're one of the best historians I've ever heard of. Do you know of a civilization that did that? Well, Israel, right before God finally judged it the last time, they would sacrifice their kids to Moloch. And uh, they thought that if they sacrificed their child, that it would uh, bring their that pagan god's blessings on their fields and so forth. But here it was a financial reason that they would sacrifice their children. And uh, you see uh, many different cultures that had this pagan idea. And you read the stories and you're like, gee, what a backwards pagan society that was. And then you think, wait a second, we're doing the exact same thing. And we're just giving it different names, Planned Parenthood and so forth. You may as well call it, you know, by a, a, some pagan name. And um, But the same God that said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Uh, I don't know. Well, yeah, you killed your brother Abel, and his blood is crying out to me from the ground. What was the blood crying? An injustice has been done, and you're a just God. you got to judge the guy that did it. 
And that blood is, and, and that's been impl- implanted in us so much so that every police drama you see on TV in the first two minutes, an injustice is done. Somebody's mm-hmm. killed. And inside of you, you know that the person that did it must be judged. And you're held captive for the next hour watching this program, wanting the person that did the injustice right. to be caught and, and put behind bars or killed or whatever. And so God is feeling this pull this righteous God that these innocent babies are being killed. And now we see that a whole lot of these uh, ISIS killers over there, they're killing people and wiping out Christian populations using American guns and American Humvees. And then we rush through funding to train Muslim, good Muslims to fight bad Muslims. Well, as soon as they get armed and trained, they join ISIS. We're either either the most inept world superpower arming the bad guys, or this is intentional. And I think that a righteous God is, has to judge us for this. And it is us repenting and, and asking for his mercy and, and that can stay the judgment. But um, uh, that's my feeling. Wow. Well, so, so all is not lost. I think um, I, I'm always emboldened. I have a good friend, Rick Green. He's, uh, he travels around the country doing um, seminars uh, on the Constitution called Constitutional Live. He's actually Rick, by the way, is running. If you live in Texas, pick Rick. Hashtag pick Rick. He's running for Supreme Court there in Texas. Great guy, great friend of mine. Uh, very instrumental in me uh, writing a book and traveling around the country and doing what I do. But um, Rick, he is a very positive guy. He says, you know, God, I don't think God is finished with us yet. I don't. I don't think that we give up. We're to work until he comes. My friends, uh, Jill and John Stabley, they, they, they quote that all the time. We are to work until he comes. So I, I, I to give up, but at the same time, I'm so frustrated. I have a dear friend of mine, great radio guy. Uh, I'll introduce you to him if you don't know him already. His name is Dave Perkins. He does a phenomenal show. Uh, it's, I don't know how many stations. It's a lot of stations, it's terrestrial and internet and all that, and he's all over the place. Uh, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And, you know, he's very frustrated, and I feel bad for him. He said the political climate is pitting friend against friend. And the first thing I thought of is that in the end times, brother will go against brother. We'll, we will, we, you know, we'll fight each other. And that's what's happening. I mean, the rhetoric that's going around now uh, is just extraordinary. Uh, it's just absolutely extraordinary and troubling indeed. So, when it comes to the the final analysis and we look at this overall thing you know how do you what do you do i mean your your grasp of scripture is in fact i even want to ask you this how is it you know like i've been to i have a i'm working on my second doctorate uh first is in theology second is going to be in in doctorate in divinity and how do you this encyclopedic knowledge of the bible how did that happen well, I can't obviously claim to to know as much as you say I do. Uh, I uh, I uh, do read the Bible uh, every day. Uh, there's many different uh, helps. One is called uh, BibleGateway.com or .org, and you can put your email in there, and it sends you the uh, reading for the day, little Old Testament, little New Testament, and you can even pick the translation you want. And uh, I just make it simple, use the King James, but you can pick any different one. And, it, and I think how many of the listeners read emails? And how many of you would read an email from someone who's important in your life, a boss, a spouse, a child? 
who could be more important than God? So it's sort of like getting an email from God. And right. it's like, you know, I tell myself, okay, I'm going to read this. Now, would you read it later? Oh, wait till I'm in a nice cozy chair getting a spirit. Or would you just read it? This is an importance. And so that's one of the things. The second is um, now there's lots of apps on your iPhone where you can download the Bible and click a button, and it'll read out loud the Bible to you. Mm-hmm. And so I'm driving in my car, I got my earbuds in or whatever, I'm in the airport, I travel every week, I'm on the plane, rather than sit there just on the plane, I'll, I'll plug, it, put, plug it in and, you know, listen and, and um, you know, sometimes have trouble going to sleep, I'll put it on and it has a little timer and you can, you know, uh, listen for 15 minutes or 30 while you're, and, and um, so anyway, uh, I, I would encourage those in the listening audience to get these different apps. Uh, I was just at a convention, and they showed me D. James Kennedy app. Uh, and so you can go to the, your app store and put in, and, and it has the Bible in like a hundred different languages. Hmm. And you can press a button, and it reads it to you out loud. And it's like, how, how much easier can it get, you know? And, and I like it, quite honestly, because there are a lot of books in the Bible that I probably would not read. Right, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, you know, uh, Malachi. I mean, it's like how often do you think? Oh, I think I'm going to read from, you know, uh, these different, you know, Ecclesiastes. You probably wouldn't read through, but if you're listening, then it's like, oh, I'm just listening along. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take any energy really, and, and you just listen through it. But then you'll pick up a little bit here, a little bit there. Wow, great, great advice, no doubt about it. Well, I know that you uh, you're on a tight schedule, and and I really appreciate, it. and I know the audience truly appreciates it, both the live audience now, and then the we have a, a pretty a pretty big uh, replay audience that comes in and listens to the archive, and I just want you to know how much I appreciate it. I appreciate you being receptive to my book, and and also to coming on the show, and thank you for working it out. I know you're going a hundred different directions at one time, and. Uh, for you to have, uh, for for you to have taken the time today to spend with us, I think we are the better for it. Listen, folks, you got to go out and get his books, Bill Federer's books. Um, it, it is absolutely, uh, it, it's an education, but it's fun to read. Um, it, it's it's not something that you'll think to yourself, "My lands, how am I going to get through this?" In fact, you'll read it, you'll read it, and you'll find that time has sort of flown by and you realize, hey, this is an hour later. How you know, how did how did this happen? It seemed like it was just a few minutes and now here you are, you know, don't blame Bill if you're late for work or late somewhere because let's be honest, you know, it's not his fault. Well it kinda is, but you can't blame him. So Bill, thank you so much for coming on today. I hope that you'll consider coming on again and, and you know, we really appreciate what you do and how you do it. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, um, and it's a real honor to be on. And uh, I wanted to mention that my website's AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. I send out a free daily history email called American Minute. Uh, the one today is on Victor Hugo. He's the one who, the French author who wrote Hunchback in Notre Dame and Les Miserables and so forth, and he wrote a poem about uh, Vlad uh, the Impaler stopping the Muslim invasion into Romania. Uh, and it's, uh, anyway, but, uh, but it's, so it's fascinating little emails, one for every day of the year of things you probably may not know about. And um, uh, the book that I talked about is called What Every American Needs to Know About the Quran, A History of Islam in the United States. I also have two DVDs on my website. One is called Islamic Conquest, Past and Present. Another is called Political Islam's War in the West. 
And uh, because uh, you were so kind to have me on and I was a little late getting here, um, if any of the listening audience emails me and mentions you and the program, uh, I'll send them a free copy of my book, uh, What Every American Needs to Know About the Quran, as an e-book. And so I just attach it to the email and send it back. And so my email address is wjfederer at gmail.com. That's wjf as in Frank, E-D-E-R-E-R at gmail.com. And so within the next uh, week, if somebody emails me and mentions uh, you, then I'll uh, attach that and send the email back. But uh, again, thank you so much for having me on. And AmericanMinute.com is my website. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Have a great, great day. Thank you. Uh, Bye-bye. So, America, there you have it. You can't say you don't know. You can't say you don't know. Now you know. So now that you know, what are you going to do about it? Well, I think the first thing to do is to pray. I think the first thing to do is to pray. I think it's critically, critically important to pray. And what he said about the word, I asked that question. I know, you know, you know and I know that I know part of the answer, but I think it's important to hear it from a different thing. Listen, folks, we've got to get into our scripture. Not to the exclusion of looking around, keep an eye on our six, but to know what God is saying to us as a country. It was our founding document, folks. We can say that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence is, but you know what the truth of the matter is, is the scripture is. And so great advice. Bill gave great advice. The audio uh, are absolutely phenomenal. Um, I do it all the time. I mean, I and he's right. I mean, some of those some of those books I had to read in seminary, books of the Bible. I thought, oh, lands. I'm, I'm going to pull my eyes out. I'm just going to just jank them right out of my. And I'm not allowed to do that. I'm forbidden to do that. Told no loss of appendages, no eyes. You got to keep them. That's just the rule. So what I'm saying to you is, I'm encouraging you to do that today. And you know what? AmericanMinute.com, what a great way to learn the truth of our founding and our history. So I'm encouraging you today, don't give up. We can't. We can't give up. America gives up, we're done. And I know everybody's fighting everybody. The Cruz people are fighting the uh, Trump people, and the Trump people are maligning everybody else in the whole wide world. Uh, you know what? we got to be above it. we got to stand above it. we got to be strong. And we got to win, because if we lose this election, we are finished. The judgment will come for us, and I believe the judgment is not going to be pretty. Go to theninjapastor.com, theninjapastor.com, drshawngreener.com, D-R-S-H-A-W-N-G-R-E-E-N-E-R. If you're into what we do and you'd like to contribute to that, so into what we do, please feel free to do that, and um, you, nothing will be taken advantage of. We we're honored to have you do it. Thank you so much for joining us today on this special episode. Please share it with your friends on social media, uh, all over Twitter, all that stuff. I'd be honored if you did and uh, put a little link in there, uh, theninjapastor.com, and that way people can learn about what we do. Thank you for joining us. What an honor. It is absolutely a pleasure to talk to you every single week, sometimes two or three or four or five times a week. So also listen to Southern Sense. Southern Sense on Monday. Um, if you just go to Blog Talk Radio, type that in, you'll see that. Annie Ubellis did a great job. She does a great show, and I had the pleasure of being a guest on her show. Thank you so much for joining us, and God bless you. God bless America.
Join us next time for The Collision of Faith and Politics. And please follow this show at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash the ninja pastor. And follow Dr. Sean on Twitter at the ninja pastor and on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash God in Country Radio and at www.drseangreener.com. In the meantime, Dr. Sean will be fighting for you and for this great country. Thank you for joining in this fight. <laughs>